morning, good afternoon, and good evening, according to the time and place you listen to us at this moment. My name is Armando Conte, and you are listening to the series Governance in Africa, conversations from the Center of African Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, part of the University of London in the United Kingdom. This program is a part of the Governance for Development in Africa initiative, funded by the Moore Ibrahim Foundation. The initiative aims to enable Africans to improve the quality of governance in their countries by supporting them to develop skills and talents within an expert academic environment. The focus is to study both the legal aspects of governance and the relationship between governance and economic development. Well, welcome, Hein Murray, to SOAS. Um, Hein Murray is an independent writer on AIDS and public health, and he's just published South Africa Push to the Limit The Political Economy of Change. And Hein's here today to talk about uh, HIV and AIDS and its impact on South Africa. Um, I think the first question uh, that comes from, from reading the chapter in this excellent book is what sorts of governance challenges are posed by the kinds of AIDS epidemics that we're seeing in Eastern and Southern Africa? The, it's a question with no clear answer yet, but we can see some of the signs and try and tease out an answer from that. Where, where it leads me is in the direction of, of looking at what sectors of the state of the public service uh, are involved in the social reproduction of human capital, of social capital. So it's the areas where we are trying to treat and care for people, the health sector, in other words, the areas where we're trying to teach kids to do the basics, uh, the three R's, etc., the education system. I think that's where, where the governance challenges, the governance impact is going to be felt most severely and where the impact is also most unequal. And the it, it's this inequality of it. It's not that people who are poor are more likely to become infected with HIV. I think the data and the studies show this is not the case. But what it does show is that if you are poor and you live in a poor household and community, the impact is so much bigger. You have so much less room to shift the costs and the effects around around you. And it, I, I think the, the cumulative impact over the course of generations in a country like South Africa, Swaziland, Mozambique, the, the high prevalence countries in Southern Africa is going to be to make it so much more difficult for poor communities and households to provide their kids with the kinds of educations they they deserve and to ensure that people, family members and so on, get the kind of care that they need in order to live a remotely uh, decent and dignified life. So for me, the governance challenges lie, how does the state compensate for that? Now, the tendency we have at the moment certainly in Southern and East Africa, is to say, well, there's only so much the state can do. It has fiscal constraints. Uh, we have to try and keep the economy growing. A lot of effort and money needs to go into those areas. And there's a tendency to start shifting that responsibility of social reproduction back onto communities, back onto households. And what does that mean? It ultimately means back onto the women in those households, young and old in there. So there's a really regressive a danger of a really regressive reaction, um, not because the policymakers are being particularly evil or unfeeling, but they, there is st structural pressures pushing them in this direction. And I think if that governance challenge is to be met, it requires us rethinking how the state becomes involved in it and how it shifts its resources and, and, um, 
and its means around in order to make this less of an unequal epidemic in there. The In the early 2000s, there was an almost cottage industry that emerged around this idea that AIDS in Southern Africa especially was actually going to cause huge security crises. It would cause governments to collapse. Um, institutions wouldn't be able to function. People would become ill, die off. Uh, you wouldn't be able to reproduce knowledge and experience and all of this. And that, I think, the past decades experience has more or less refuted. We haven't seen a single country, uh, it, it's, its governing capacities just dissolve, certainly not because of AIDS. And it poses an interesting question, why? Which I'm not sure I have all the answers to. But I think it, it teaches one an important lesson, which is that in trying to tease out what AIDS does to a society or to important institutions in it, we, we need to avoid separating AIDS out from those many other factors, many of them systematic and systemic factors that also damage or make it possible to improve the kinds of services the state provides and the kinds of opportunities and rights that it, that it is able to, to issue. So I think we need to talk about AIDS in the context of all these other factors and dynamics that make society what it is. And when you start doing that, um, it, it's almost a threat to this, this industry of knowledge around AIDS that gets created because of it, it distinguishes itself by building a very exclusive and sometimes quite sophisticated body of research and knowledge around this thing called AIDS. And when you start telling people, well, actually, you need a bit more cross-disciplinary research happening here. You need to link this to macroeconomic policies, to global trade policies, to your patent rights system, etc., etc. Then uh, people seem to go a little bit blurry-eyed and, and, and they lose focus in there. But I think that is a real challenge that has to be met if we're to understand the impact of this epidemic. I mean, there's lots there that I'd like to go back to, but perhaps picking up on this issue of inequality that you raised, um, I mean, South Africa, of course, is is widely known uh, for Mbeki's statement about AIDS as a disease of poverty uh, and linked to that the denialism about the link <coughs> between HIV and AIDS. Um, and you very clearly argue that, and as you've just stated, that inequality, not poverty, is the key issue. I just wonder if you could expand on that. How is inequality playing into this in a way that poverty perhaps isn't? And is this something that is particular to HIV and AIDS or is this something uh, that is about public health more generally that in all public health crises we need to be looking towards inequality rather than poverty? Well, inequality at, at a most basic level would, would refer to the fact that different parts of a, of a society have different level of, levels of access to resources, um, in this case to health care or to the, the means to avoid becoming ill, to defending and protecting your immune system, etc., etc. So the moment you have those kinds of, of, of resources and, and capacities distributed in, in a highly unfair and, and, and equal way, there's obviously going to be there's a kind of a, a bunching of, of the effects of that amongst those who are less um, less employed, more likely to be poor, etc., etc. So there's an obvious public health dimension to it. The, the way in which it differs from poverty is, I think South Africa is an interesting uh, kind of laboratory for, for that whole question because the, the studies elsewhere in Africa where we've looked at demographic data and tried to match it up against AIDS and HIV infection data, it shows quite clearly that in many of these countries, it is the more wealthy or the wealthier 
quintiles of society that tend to have the higher rates of HIV infection among them. And this was counterintuitive. Common wisdom ran in the opposite direction. But it really is indisputable. This is what the data is showing. However, and I cannot quite explain to you what's going on here. But however, if you go to South Africa and you look at the data that we have available there. Now, the problem there is we have, well, it's not really a problem, it's, it's actually an advantage, is we have two really important sets of, of demographic data that we can link to AIDS. The one is workplace related. So it's people who've gone into industries and into especially the public health and the public education sectors, and try to see who's being most affected by HIV. And we learn certain things there. I'll tell you about them in a second. The other is um, our population-based studies, national studies. We've had three of them now, where we actually are able to go and basically almost canvas the entire, by way of random surveys, the entire population, and see where does the epidemic tend to bunch. Workplace studies, here what we find. Remember now, this is obviously an incredibly polarized society, racially and otherwise, right? But we find that the lower down you go in terms of skills levels and the lower down you go in terms of your income, which is obviously matched to your skills levels, the higher the rate of HIV in South Africa. Now, the caveat there is we are only talking about people who actually have work. Obviously, so we're not talking about 33, 35% of South Africans who do not have regular wage incomes. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a, a, a black hole for us that we don't quite understand what's happening in there in relation to AIDS. But the fact that you have this this sort of shading of vulnerability, it seems to bunch up amongst those less skills, lower income, suggests that maybe there is something about not necessarily your direct poverty. But something that does relate to the education you've received, your ability uh, to sustain your family, yourself, nurture and, and, and a, a marriage, etc., that is playing itself out in this epidemic in South Africa. Uh, we see this in some of the population-based studies as well. The highest rates of HIV infection are in informal settlements in and around the cities and towns of South Africa. These are tend to be the poorest uh, places, but not the poorest. They tend to be among the poorest, but not the poorest. If you look at provinces in South Africa, you find the highest rates of infection are not in the two poorest provinces. That's Northern Province and Eastern Cape. Northern Province's HIV infection rate is sort of in the middle range of South Africa, but it is by far the poorest province. So there's, a, there's contradictory data in there that we need to try and make sense of yet. How does, how does inequality play itself out is a long story, and I, I would recommend to to people to read, I, I think, the best book that tackles this whole issue. It's a book by Mark Hunter called Love in the Time of AIDS, which was released um, just a few months ago in late 2010. And um, it, it's, it's a rich, rich attempt to understand how inequality, rights, gender, etc., have played itself out in the epidemic in South Africa. I, I think it's un, unrivaled at the moment in that field. So I would leave it to the readers to read Mark Hunter on this, and, and that hopefully will answer your question. But if we're looking to inequality rather than poverty, um, what challenges does that create for the South African government in addressing the HIV and AIDS crisis? Presumably, uh, a lot of poverties that are designed to specifically tackle poverty pro-poor growth, pro-poor development interventions may not have the same impact on HIV and AIDS um, as pr uh, policies that are designed specifically to tackle inequality. Um, does it create a challenge for the South African government? What is the nature of that challenge? And, and is the government attempting to meet that challenge? 
I think the government will say it is trying to meet it. Let's try and answer the question at two levels. There's that macro level of of large-scale policies to address poverty, to address uh, a maldistribution of, of opportunities and resources and, and entitlements in there. And then let's pick a, a more closer to the ground level as well. And I'm going to talk there around home-based care. Because I think that's where we really see inequality play itself out in a, in a quite graphic way. Start with home-based care. We know that certainly across Africa, many other parts of the world, but certainly across Africa and Southern Africa and South Africa is no different. Care in the house, the social reproductive tasks in the household are performed largely by women. Uh, This is in the main unpaid labor. When women fail to be able for health and other reasons to perform those tasks, men step into the breach, but it's a rare occurrence. It is not the trend. It is not typical for this to happen. We have an epidemic with five and a half million people infected, people becoming ill, often in in very anguishing and and, and horrific ways. And these are experiences playing themselves out behind the walls of homes. They might be shack walls, they might be brick walls. And it's women who are coping with that in a often very, very private and 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 insular and insulated way. It's very difficult to go out to the neighbor and say what you've had to do today in your home when you're dealing with a, a, a child dying of AIDS and TB. And there's a fundamental inequality playing itself out there, which is about gender. It's about what we expect women to do in society. On that front, South Africa is not very different from so many other African countries. I fear the progress has been rather weak. On the statute books, we can point to it. In real life, it's been rather frail and fragile. And I think that's where one of the big challenges lies. It's a long-term challenge of, of, of redistributing the sense of what men and women do in and around the house. And it's, I can't tell you what the holy grail is there because I don't think any of us know. But that's the big challenge, I think, that, that has to be fought. Now, we have a, a government strategy around home-based care which is meant to support the provision of this care. And until the mid-2000s, perhaps even a little a little beyond that. It was a strategy that placed enormous weight on this work, this this incredibly arduous work of women, emotionally and, and physically, and, and financially draining as well, with a bit of support arrayed around them, some volunteer health workers being recruited. Uh, I say some, several thousand, but you spread it across an entire country and it, and it thins. And what the experience which field studies showed there was often these women felt incredibly isolated, not being able to draw on on good enough support, good enough knowledge, not always knowing what to do next. And there was a gap that emerged between this cadre of volunteer house workers and a professional service that could be provided in there. This is being fixed right now. But for me, the model um, that we failed to introduce quickly enough, we're trying to move towards it, was Uganda's. There, they, they didn't talk about community-based care. They talked about community-oriented care. So you had volunteer house workers going, uh, health workers going, identifying ill persons in households, providing basic care, but being linked into a network of professional care around them. So that, that kind of referral network, that sense also that it's an emotional knowledge that you have support when things grind down there's somewhere you can go someone who will know what to do in there has been missing in south africa so long so it's an inequality that that as you can see manifests itself in quite shaded and and subtle ways but with with devastating consequences in households at the macro level we have 
in South Africa been following for the past 15 years a set of policies which are fundamentally neoliberal. They, they are utterly um, obsessed with the idea of promoting economic growth. Of course, with the hope that a good deal of this will be re- of the benefits, the fruits will be redistributed. We don't see an enormous amount of evidence for that right now. So I think there's another challenge, and that is to reorient our macroeconomic and other policies in a way that makes them fairer, more just, and certainly potentially more equal. Um, I I would like to say that we've made good progress on that, but in honesty, I have to say we haven't in there. So we're living in a society that, in a sense, is trying to put band-aids on on problems that are being reproduced constantly, structurally reproduced in South Africa. We're not alone in this, but we are an upper-middle-income country after all. And I think we have more leeway for taking on these sorts of challenges than, than we sometimes admit to. I mean, you've just talked about kind of the macro level and, the, and, and brought up the economy. What is the impact of HIV and AIDS on the South African economy? Um, and are there particular sectors that are, are, are likely to be or are currently being worst affected, such as the mining, agricultural, right. industrial, and so on? It will answer, the answer depends on who you, you <coughs> pose the question to. We have so many scenarios and, and modeling exercises that have been done on this. They all come up <coughs> with different answers. Uh, the... The impact in terms of, uh, of effects on GDP growth range from practically nil, 0.3% in some modeling uh, model studies, to really uh, disastrous, you know, to an economy that practically grinds to a halt. Why? Because they are modeling on different uh, assumptions about the demographic uh, extent and impact of the epidemic, different assumptions about the channels along which these effects manifest in the workplace and in industries, and uh, different assumptions about what those effects are in there as well. So th- thus far, again, it's very difficult to tease AIDS out of a whole bunch of other factors, the recession being one, um, a whole other fact, a bunch of factors that do affect economic growth in there. What I find more useful is to try and look um, not even just at an industry level, but actually at, at, a, at a workplace level and see how has a particular business, big, medium or small, tried to deal or not deal with this AIDS epidemic. There have been a few good studies on this, um, Rosen study, I think, well, a series of studies is amongst the best. And what they unfortunately find is that a lot of businesses are quite able to deflect those costs. How do they do this? There is some screening that still happens. If you look ill and so on, it's very easy for especially smaller businesses to just wave you on and look at the next candidate. But a lot of it has been quite systematic and it predates the AIDS epidemic. And it's it's the fact that the terms on which labor is hired and use, used have changed. So it's not just that wages have become cramped. It's also the fact that the benefits that you get in a wage job have become so much smaller and narrower and difficult to access in there. Now, of course, alongside that, we have the big companies, the corporate companies who are aware of the need to project a particular image of caring and for their workers, who have prevention programs, who have, um, in some cases, treatment and care programs. Some of them even extend to the families of, of workers, and these are all very admirable. They're not the mean, though. They are not... They are not typical. So on the whole, I think South African industry has been able to to sidestep a lot of this impact, which might explain why it, it's not so readily visible in the economic growth, which, by the way, is not exactly vigorous and brisk anyway. Um, but I would not attribute a lot of that 
to the AIDS epidemic itself because of this agility that industry has, even in a country with quite strong labor legislation. Imagine what it's like where you don't really have strong labor legislation. And again, where does it, if you sidestep that impact, where does it go? Well, it goes back to the communities, the lives, the spaces in which those workers are living or, or uh, are trying to, to fashion a decent life. And in what we've seen in places in southern Africa, or there have certainly been suggestions that HIV and AIDS has had a catastrophic impact on food production. Mm-hmm. So the 2002-03 famine, uh, the term new variant famine was applied to it to describe a famine brought about or where a major element in the causation was the high incidence of HIV and AIDS. <clears throat> Are we seeing anything similar in the agricultural sector, in the rural areas in South Africa, given that in much of sub-Saharan Africa, HIV and AIDS is a disease of the rural sector more so than the urban sector? Does that pattern hold true for South Africa as well? The highest HIV rates in South Africa are on the fringes of urban areas. There are pockets of rural areas, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal, parts of Eastern Cape and so on, with, with exceptionally high levels of, of, uh, of HIV infection. But it really bunches around the cities of South Africa. So uh, to some extent, South Africa presents a, a rather curious case, not least because of its history of apartheid, where you basically had your rural agricultural base um, not denuded effectively as as a foundation for for managing and and sustaining livelihoods. So it's very different, I think, from from a lot of other African experiences. There, um, the thesis of the new variant famine was was very tantalizing when it first was made in the early two thousands. But I do think that the the famine that you mention forced a lot of people to to reassess it and and say with with some honesty that I think it was overblown and overwrought. There really was not a lot of connections that could be drawn between that famine and HIV and AIDS. The connections went much more in the direction of trade and marketing policy, subsidies that were being withdrawn on fertilizers and seeds and, and, and the other support that had been provided to farmers. So again, uh, you know, I, I come back to that earlier point to, to try and single out AIDS as the villain that we can sort of put in the, in, in the spotlights and say, if only we can deal with this guy and get him behind bars, a lot else will fall in, in place is, is utterly misplaced, unfortunately. One of the issues that's been talked about a lot in sub-Saharan Africa as a whole is the delayed response of African governments and often this is ascribed to the fact that by the time HIV is known to exist as as an HIV and AIDS as a as a disease um, it's already a generalized epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa Um, and that is often seen as 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 one of the the causes as well as uh, some of the 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 racist discourses that emerged in the early 1980s around how it was transmitted and so on but in the writing about South Africa one thing that actually often seems missing from many modern accounts is an acknowledgement of the of the apartheid system um, which you've mentioned how does that play into this where where do we see uh, the, the main failure in governance is is the apartheid legacy something that that dominates throughout the 90s and even into today in terms of specifically HIV and AIDS or should we really be looking towards post-apartheid government in the 1990s sort of the things that were done or not done under Mandela and then in particular in Becky it's a combination of the two I think there's no denying that that the HIV epidemic like the TB epidemic, like so many other public health catastrophes in a country like South Africa are are the overhang of history. Um, 
in many respects, the AIDS epidemic is is apartheid's epidemic. It's it's the the migratory patterns, the the way in which households uh, were reconstituted, the value systems, the norms that accompanied that, and were reshaped by it. The difficulties as as employment became rarer, particularly from the 1970s onwards, in which to to financially be able um, as a as a young man to uh, to court and to establish a, a strong intimate relationship, a marriage, and build a family on the basis of that. So, in in very fundamental ways, that's the story of a colonialism and apartheid. But it's not simply that, because I do think that in in at least two respects, what happens from the 90s onwards has had an enormous impact um, on the the intensity and the the uh, the sheer scale of this epidemic, and of course, on our ability to do something about it. Um, again, Mark Hunter, I think, is magnificent in talking about how policies, economic policies, and otherwise choices that were made from the early 90s onwards have certainly exacerbated the trend that I just described, some of those trends that I've just described. So there's not, it's it's too easy, too convenient to just say, well, this was going to happen anyway, it was going to happen like this no matter what we did. It's not the fact. Um, let's turn to what could have been done. Look, the AIDS epidemic was bungled in South Africa, absolutely. Um, and it took ages for government to get through that 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 almost I, I'm I almost want to say crazed uh, debacle about denialism and the way it which conducted, which was often very irrational on both sides of the argument, um, and failed to really I think get to grips with with what really led to these strange positions becoming government policies. I don't think many of the critics of of the uh, policies and conduct associated with Thabo Mbeki and his government have yet come to terms of what that what lay behind those those policies in there and I try and touch on that in the book a little bit um, and I and I would argue that it's it deserves some serious thought because the I think one of the reasons why the nihilism took so so much of a hold in South Africa is because of South Africans historical and in many ways existential experience of science of medicine and oppression the apartheid system and the colonial uh, its pl- colonial precursors um, were quite adept at at threading together these these realms of 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 the rational of the enlightenment world and these were things that weren't distant memories for people um, if you were 50 60 years old in the early 1990s in south africa you'd experience some of these effects and you certainly had parents and family members who had directly experienced them it goes back to the rinderpest plagues in the early part of the 20th century to the syphilis scares in the 1930s and 40s and so on so there's a real there was a real a real uh, aversion, a deep suspicion about science and how it's deployed, medicine and how it's deployed against black people in South Africa. So in a way, again, of course, that is history, but it's a, it's, it's a history that lives on emotionally in people. In South Africa, it manifested as policy almost, certainly as practice, where suddenly it was decided, as you alluded to earlier, that HIV doesn't cause AIDS, it's poverty that we should be looking at. And clearly those were choices made by by rational, clear-headed people. Um, and for me, the the really puzzling and 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 puzzle, uh, and, and, and tantalizing question here is not how does it get to grip Tabo and Becky and a few people around him? 
how does it get to at least placate millions of South Africans? If you look at the African National Congress during that period, there was not a single public vocal contesting of that position occurring for years. So if we want to understand how this sort of thing happens, we have to understand that behavior in there. And I think it shows you just how deeply, how deeply uh, entangled and messy the experience of an epidemic like that is, because it speaks to history that refuses to go away. And I think in a way, it, it's, a, it's, it's a reality of AIDS that one can project onto almost any other big public health um, crisis that a country like South Africa experiences. History doesn't, history is never history. It, it's often the future as well in the way in which we experience it in our lives. I think that's a really important point. I think one thing we can see elsewhere is the reaction to Western biomedical messages about health and medicine and the way they're interpreted in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa. So we can see in the resistance to polio vaccines in Nigeria, uh, resistance to a whole host of messages in East and Central Africa, as well as uh, in South Af Africa, as you've just described. You know, the, the conspiracy theories that the West are out to get you through health and medicine in some cases was true, and it, particularly in, in apartheid era and colonial era South Africa. Um, and I, I think that creates, as you say, these, these interesting dynamics dynamics for how these messages are understood. I mean, you, you mentioned, I mean, this, this leads on to the, the place of civil society. Um, and ag again, one of the things that has always struck me is, given in many countries how significant a proportion of the population uh, is affected by the disease, either through being infected themselves or living with someone, having someone in the family member, that there isn't a stronger constituency, that, that civil society hasn't actually taken as big a political role. And in many sub-Saharan African countries, Uganda is a classic example, civil society has done a great job at providing care, uh, helping roll out treatment programs. Um, but it, it's done kind of the, the, the work about how to look after people. It hasn't challenged the government. And South Africa seems to present an example where you have a, a very politicised and actually highly effective civil society. And I just wondered if, if the, the vacuum that's created by the position of the state has allowed for that. So in the absence of a strong state or even a, a medium state taking a lead, that that has allowed civil society to take a stronger mm. role. And if so, what are the, the implications beyond HIV and AIDS? Uh, I mean, the, the success of TAC in the court cases showing that a government could be challenged and lose. Um, does that have implications for South African democracy in a wider sense? You know, I think the treatment action campaign experience was in some ways uh, an enigma. And I'll try and, I'll try and explain what I mean by that. It didn't start out, its initial momentum didn't come from a sense that government was doing the wrong thing and had to be opposed. It came from a, a sense of solidarity with government, actually. There was always a critical mindedness playing itself out there, but it was a useful one that was being deployed in support of government, which was, as you remember, in the early 2000s, having to confront 39 multinational pharmaceutical companies in a court trial. And the treatment action campaign, I think, then goes through various phases of, of, of development or, or maturity. Until, of course, it ends up being really opposed to government. But it's in, that, it's in that journey that I think the interesting story lies. What they achieve, which no other civil society movement has achieved in South Africa, is they manage to challenge 
and contest the the zone of policy making inside government. There's been no other sector than HIV/AIDS where that has been successful by civil society. And it's not as if other groups are not contesting these things, from housing to provision of water, electricity. It's daily being fought over. Treatment action campaign contested it, and it won in there. So there was an enormous. This is an enormous, unique achievement in the post-apartheid experience in South Africa. Now. To understand why it won, I think, is leads me towards an understanding of that phenomenon that maybe means it was quite unique. And I think it won because it occurred at a at a point where a number of very favorable factors converged around it. Some of them were international, were global. Think back to the late 1990s. We have the ultra-globalization movement happening. Seattle just was, was happening on the fringes. We had people being smuggled into Davos and protesting right in front of the, the money bags of the world. And one of the big battles being fought over, certainly in the, in the uh, multinational uh, arena, the multinational corporate arena, was patent rights and intellectual property rights, a real push to extend um, their hold and strengthen their hold on this. And this was being resisted by the alter-globalization movement. And AIDS presented such a perfect arena for this, right? I mean, the, the dramaturgy of AIDS, of poor people in Africa dying because they couldn't get pills that should be affordable, was so powerful. And these two factors came together. So the contesting of patent rights and the need to provide cheap hopefully free antiretrovirals, which are now becoming more sophisticated and, and a more viable form of treatment, came together very powerfully in there um, um, at this period. We're now talking early 2000s, exactly the time when the treatment action campaign inside South Africa is gaining momentum and so on. So I think that that international context was very important for it. The other thing that I think was very important is that it, it deployed tactics which the the left and sort of left progressive forces in South Africa are not always inclined to. If you come from a history where you have to confront a regime as as uh, as grotesque as the apartheid system was, you tend to do it head on. There, there's no room for compromise here. You're not trying to see are they willing to give a little and we can give a little in there. This is a system that had to be destroyed. That was the reigning mindset that governed the tactics and strategies of, of resistance in South Africa. And the left never quite left that behind. What the treatment action campaign went and did is it actually did go beyond that. It realized as it matured that there are areas where we have to build alliances with other social forces. And it had the church, the religious movements, organizations. It had the trade union movement and it had other groupings of civil society that it could draw on. And it realized that there were elements of the state that it could work with often even individuals that it could work with. And it tried to forge alliances with them, fought court cases on their side, and so on. And it, I think it, is a, it was a, a form of tactics that kept government off its balance very often in there, very successfully, and of course it became a success in the end. So it's, it's an experience that's not necessarily going to be easy to reproduce because of factors that were beyond the treatment action campaign's control. It played itself out in there. Um, but what it was good at, and I think this is the good part of the story, is it was so good at seizing those opportunities. They don't oft often arrive, but when they did, tack seized them. Can this be extended or reproduced elsewhere in the world around something like AIDS? You know, public health is not often an issue that gets people out in the streets 
And there have been some, some attempts to understand this in the sort of sociology of social movements. Um, my sense of AIDS as a potential mobilizing force is it, it becomes that if it can be tied to a sense of deprivation with a clear object, a clear villain. If it's the state or a particular corporation that is doing something or not doing it, then that, that, that protest energy can be mobilized around it. But as a, as a, as a long-term catastrophe that plays itself out, so much of that is private. These are not things you talk about to your friends, often your family. And they're not experiences that are easily shared as well. Um, so in a, in a sense, AIDS has this hermetic dimension to it as well, which, which locks people down especially the women who are who are saddled with so much of, of the consequences in there. And that runs against that, that sense of, of, ex, of explosive and effusive energy and, and anger and sentiment that you need in order to build a movement. I, I don't see AIDS as being one of those, those catalyzers, unfortunately. And finally, if I could just ask about, I guess, the future. I mean, I think you, you quite rightly... Uh, ask questions of some of the more apocalyptic visions of, of the impact of HIV and AIDS that were written in the early 2000s. Um, but as you point out in the book, I mean, you use the metaphor of the, of the tidal wave, and, and, and HIV and AIDS is a long wave event. Um, so arguably, as you make the point, you know, it's what happens in 5, 10, 15 years' time that counts. What is the nature of the threat, if any, that HIV and AIDS poses to a, a young democracy like South Africa? It's, it calls for crystal... It calls for some crystal ball gazing. So it's, you forgive me if I'm totally wrong in five, 10, 15 years from now. I return to, to something I said right at the beginning of our chat, which is that I, I think the effect on those sectors of society in the state that are responsible for social reproduction or supporting so, social reproduction are most vulnerable to these effects. And it is likely to play itself out in the kinds of education opportunities that poor children in poor households and communities have their prospect of social mobility and if if that is the case then it means that the kind of polarization that defines a society like South Africa is likely to be hardened if you're poor it's basically meaning that you're going to stay poor and that that dream that everybody has that your child will not have to suffer or experience what you did they're going to have a better life and you devote your life to that is more likely to be thwarted in those kinds of circumstances. In the other other institutions of, of governance, of keeping your law system operating, your judicial uh, apparatus working relatively smoothly, um, I think we're likely to see effects that are going to play themselves out in other areas. Education system is an example. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Often in education, public education, the, the fear is we're going to lose teachers. Of course, this is the case. We are seeing an attrition occur there, partly due to, uh, to disease and death. But it's not just teachers that can destroy or, or de cause a, an education system to deteriorate. It's often the people in the back rooms. It's your administrative staff and your management staff that are so crucial. And it's in those realms, those, those back corridors of our, of our state and public sector, that I fear the epidemic's impact is likely to be most severe. So the, if that is the cumulative effect of an epidemic like AIDS and, and, and tied to TB, as it is in South Africa. And then it, it threatens a kind of gradual running down of the kind of quality, the kind of consistency, the kind of predictability that you need to in order to run 
a, a, a state, a department, a unit effectively. Again, inequality comes into this because there are certain sectors of the state that will be protected. And I can guarantee you those will relate to growing the economy. And there are certain sectors that will be sacrificed. Because again, there's a sense that there's only so much to go around and we have to make our priorities and deploy our resources accordingly. So I, I fear that, that those sectors that are there to, to reproduce life and do so in a, in a dignified and humane way are likely to be the victims of this epidemic in a generation or two away. That's my big fear. Heinrich, thank you very much.